pop-up clinic confusion creates long lines. Almost five and a half hours. Is there a cure for queue jumpers coming from other communities? Punishment for Vancouver's condo party king. Our first look at the makeshift nightclub that breaks all kinds of COVID rules. And Asian hate in BC real estate. The lakefront mansion that made two realtors a target of racism. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. There are more questions tonight about the province's vaccination strategy, particularly when it comes to those pop-up clinics in COVID hotspots. As Richard Zussman reports, thousands more people waited in line for hours today, with many coming away with nothing for their efforts. Waiting hours in line, driving across Metro Vancouver, all in an attempt to get the most high-demand item in B.C., a COVID-19 vaccine. It's better to wait than getting COVID. For the second straight day, Metro Vancouverites lined up as far as the eye could see, this time in the Surrey neighbourhood of Newton, some being told they'd run out of shots. Just came from work. (laughs) So what are you going to do now? I don't know. I'll just see, check in tomorrow. We care that people get vaccinated, but I'm sure the members opposite don't believe that you should be sleeping overnight in a tent to wait for the vaccination that you have been promised. The province apologizing, saying no one should wait in these sort of lines for a vaccine, but defending the pop-up model, where the location was not widely advertised. Could have done better in terms of communications, let me acknowledge that, uh, and uh, we're working to do that. If I'm an essential worker or another worker who is in, whose time is it to get vaccinated, it's in fact critical to get vaccinated, I may not have the time to get myself to one of these pop-up clinics. Demand for vaccine clearly outpacing supply. The province noting pop-ups make up only a small part of the province's immunization campaign, one about to get a boost. 138,000 doses arriving of Pfizer this week, barely enough to keep the current pace, but that doubles next week to 276,000 doses and every week through the end of May. Even Moderna's getting a boost from 82,300 vaccine expected in the next few days to 130,000 more doses coming mid-May. The message is, to get a shot, you have to register. Once we get to Monday of next week, we are going to be inviting people to book rapidly in age by age by age by age through the week. So this is going to move much more quickly now. On Tuesday, Fraser Health allowing some from outside hotspots to get the shot at this pop-up, something that was fixed Wednesday when most people were asked to provide a postal code to prove they should be getting the vaccine. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And here's a look at today's numbers. We have 841 new cases, bringing BC's total to nearly 128,000. Just over 8,000 cases are active right now. Hospitalizations are up with 515 people receiving treatment, 171 of them in the ICU. 11,657 people are now self-isolating and there have been five more deaths. We'll bring in Keith Baldry now for a closer look at the trends we're seeing over the past few weeks Mm -hmm. here, Keith, including the age of patients in hospital, which is troubling. 
Yes, indeed. The hospital numbers remain a source of concern. So every Wednesday, the Center for Disease Control issues what it calls its Situation Report, which is a weekly update on all sorts of statistics, cases, hospitalizations, and such. So I took a look at uh, the most recent data and compared it to a month ago from mid-March to mid-April. This is what it shows. The number of people in hospital, two and a half times increase in weekly hospitalizations, going from 149 to 388. Three and a half times the increase in weekly ICU cases from 29 to 107. People in their 40s have had the biggest jump in ICU cases in that time frame at 40%, and people in their 50s have had the biggest jump in hospitalizations at 27%. So this is not just about people being over the age of 80. Now, it's not all gloom and doom on this front. Our daily case numbers continue to decline week to week. Uh, the active cases continue to decline. So do the people in self-isolation. And so, too, does the positivity rate. We tested more than 11,000 people yesterday. The positivity rate was 7.5%. Uh, the lowest it's been for some time. And Adrian Dix today pointed out uh, on a rolling seven-day average, we're finally down below 9%. We were as high as almost 11% just a few days ago. Here's the minister. We saw leading into April 11th, um, test positivity rise to about 10.7% in BC across the province. Uh, test positivity, I believe, under is uh, today under 9 for the first time in some time. And that shows that the measures, particularly those taken March 29th, are having some effect. And I really appreciate the work that uh, BC businesses and BC citizens are doing uh, in reducing that. We've still got a long way to go. We still do have a long way to go, but hopefully those hospitalization numbers start to come down. They'll probably remain high for a few days yet. Uh, and again, we don't know what impact the variants of concern are having on, on these big numbers. So hopefully in the days ahead, hospital and ICU numbers start to drop. All right, let's hope we do see that. Thank you, Keith. Employees in BC are now eligible for three hours of paid leave to get their COVID-19 vaccine. The amendment to BC's Employment Standards Act is retroactive to April 19th, and it guarantees that each full and part-time worker will be compensated for taking time off to get each dose of the vaccine. The previously announced unpaid job-protected leave remains in place and can be used in addition to the three hours of paid leave if the process takes longer or if the employee is helping a dependent family member get a COVID vaccine. Mo Movasagi, the Vancouver man who pleaded guilty to violating a COVID-19 public health order operating a makeshift nightclub in his penthouse, heard some choice words from a judge today as he learned his fate. Romina Dea has more on the judge's scathing delivery and new photos of what was found inside his penthouse rebuke by Judge Ellen Gordon, who compared Momo Visaji to a drug dealer selling deadly fentanyl. But despite the scathing words, Movisaji walked out of court, now on probation for 18 months. With 10 days credit for time served, Movisaji received a sentence of one day in jail for turning his Vancouver penthouse into a party palace in violation of public health orders. Two meters, right? Global News was there when 42-year-old Movisaji was arrested back in January. After several complaints, he was violating COVID-19 restrictions by allowing too many people in his $3 million unit. Police said he was hiding behind a chair when he was arrested. 77 others inside, apparently not wearing masks. $17,000 in fines were handed out. i never been arrested. I don't know why. We're getting our first look at what Vancouver police found inside the penthouse after they entered with a search warrant. 
Looks like the makeshift club was called Granny's. Photos released from the court include a stripper pole, stacks of cash found in a safe, tons of alcohol, velvet ropes, a guest list, menus, a DJ booth. According to the evidence, 100 cheeseburgers from McDonald's were delivered to the posh party. Judge Gordon blasted Movisaji. Had Crown been seeking a period of incarceration, you need to know, I would have imposed it, said Judge Gordon, adding that if someone had been at your party, was infected and died, as far as I'm concerned, you're guilty of manslaughter. If someone who had been at your party was infected and passed it on to Grandma, as far as I'm concerned, you're guilty of manslaughter. What you did, sir, is comparable to individuals who sell fentanyl to individuals on the street who die every day. There's no difference. You voluntarily assumed a risk that could kill people in the midst of a pandemic. I think uh, the judge's scathing words were a reflection of what most British Columbians uh, thought about his actions and his complete disregard for uh, the, uh, the health rules in place and the safety of, uh, of, uh, of other people. While a one-day jail sentence might sound light, Movisaji does not have a criminal record. He was also fined $5,000 for selling booze. There's also a forfeiture order in place, meaning that items seized from the apartment on January 31st, including booze and cash, will also be seized. Romina Dea, Global News. Two Vancouver realtors say they've become the target of racist threats after marketing a nearly $13 million Lakeview mansion in Penticton. Global's Shelby Tom has more on the racialized backlash and the alarming spike in anti-Asian hate in B.C. since the COVID-19 pandemic began. This swanky real estate marketing video showcases all this $12.8 million luxury home has to offer. Described as a lakefront architectural masterpiece, this 6,300-square-foot Penticton home even includes an emerald green marble garage floor featuring a custom turntable. It's a home that was designed with passion um, and a level of dedication that you don't really see. And realtors Matthew Zhang and Kevin Chen are eager to sell it, marketing the property online and through social media. But the pair quickly became the targets of anti-Asian racism. The derogatory comments culminated in a private email sent to Chen, which read in part, we do not appreciate you bringing dirty laundered money to our little town. You should be shot. Please leave. If not, there will be dire consequences. With this home being so expensive in an area that is quite calm, quite quiet, you know, a very small town. I think it's created a sense of hatred towards Asian people. The email was reported to police and Penticton RCMP says it's taking this matter seriously. But Zhang believes the sender was able to use their savvy computer skills to mask their true identity. No suspects have been identified. Zhang and Chen are not alone. A recent study found BC has had the most anti-Asian hate crimes per capita in North America. That is instilling fear and anxiety and, um, and, and it is very tragic that it happens uh, in British Columbia or anywhere in our country. The racialized backlash fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic, Zhang says. It's easy to blame others. And the easy thing to do is point at the Asian people. 
But the real estate duo says they won't be discouraged. Zhang is still looking for the right buyer with deep pockets and expensive taste. This home honestly is one of a kind. Shelby Tom, Global News. A key figure in government as money laundering through B.C. casinos got out of control, testifying at the Cullen Commission. Former Solicitor General Rich Coleman, what he knew about the dirty money and why he didn't deploy more investigators to check it out inside casinos. That's next on the News Hour. 46 years saving lives. A retiring paramedic takes his last call with a lifetime of memories of the downtown east side. That's coming up. Right now, though, B.C.'s former solicitor general and the person in charge of gaming for the provincial government for nearly a decade testifying today at the Cullen Commission into money laundering. Rich Coleman took issue with earlier testimony that he turned a blind eye to money laundering in order to boost government revenue, calling that ridiculous. John Hua reports. Back in the earlier days of BC casinos, government concerns included parking lot thefts and loan sharks. We we had a system which was weak, uh, dysfunctional, patchwork. Despite an election promise to limit the growth of gaming in 2001, the new minister in charge, Rich Coleman, decided the answer was to modernize and expand. By going to this particular structure, we would end up with more secure facilities. It also meant more cash flowing into his government's coffers. Coleman, who was responsible for gaming on and off for a total of eight years, told the Cullen Commission that was never a consideration. Uh, It was never a discussion that we need to do this for the money. In 2004, BC would see its largest expansion in gaming with the opening of the River Rock Casino. Despite larger amounts of cash, the need for more law enforcement did not enter the equation. I came away thinking it was a pretty well-organized, pretty secure facility. Coleman did see the need to create a joint task force focused on cracking down on suspicious activities outside legal casinos. I get was never to be involved in the casino side. But the Cullen Commission presented media reports that raised a different concern in 2004. Former casino employees had claimed some loan sharks were openly operating inside BC casinos. Coleman's response at the time he never comments on whether or not police are taking action. The government should never comment on it because that really is up to the police. The joint task force Coleman created would later suggest moving its efforts inside casinos. But in 2009, Coleman decided the unit was not effective enough to continue. I read about its inefficiencies, the fact that we couldn't keep a full complement of officers in the particular operation and those things that led me to have some pretty significant concerns about it. Coleman told the commission his thinking, new police funding for guns and gangs would pick up the slack. But in 2011, even police publicly raised concerns that large amounts of criminal cash might be entering casinos. We were all of the same mind that this has to be dirty money. This, there's something wrong here. At the time, Coleman publicly contradicted those statements stating VIPs using cash were vetted for their source of wealth. We did have customers that were legitimately wealthy that did play in large amounts of cash and we had checked them out. When commission counsel pressed him on whether that ruled out VIPs using cash from criminal sources, Coleman's answer, that wasn't the question he was asked. What he did not say publicly at the time. We don't know if it's legal or illegal money. 
Coleman did say at the time, as minister, he was aware of ongoing police investigations that might have tied gangs in attempts to launder money in casinos. I was advised of those investigations in very high confidence, to be held in confidence, and I was not in a position to talk about them publicly in any way. What Coleman did say publicly at the time, he did not agree with Baxter's concerns it was dirty money entering casinos, nor did his superiors in the RCMP. John Hua, Global News. And on the topic of policing, the Vancouver and New Westminster school districts have voted to get rid of their school liaison officer programs. But now we know that is not happening in Surrey. As Grace Key reports, the Surrey School District says it has a different system that has worked very well, supporting students and increasing safety. With that, um, it's been passed. Thank you. New Westminster is the latest school district to end its liaison program with police. The school board vote came down Tuesday night with concerns raised by one trustee. So instead of listening to the people with anti-police-like behavior, listen to the people who have ideas to improve the program. And we'll continue to work together to ensure that we're keeping kids safe in all ways possible. So just a reminder on that front that this marks the end of a program, but it's not the end of a relationship. The decision comes just a day after the Vancouver School Board voted to phase out its school liaison officer program by the end of June. Questions have been raised on how police presence affects the mental health of students, particularly black, indigenous and people of color. I know we wear a uniform. But we're also humans. Uh, we also have children. So we do know what it's like to talk to youth and, and, and children and, and be there for them and uh, provide that support. Uh, it's, again, it's just unfortunate that this happened. Surrey, the province's largest school district, has safe school liaisons who are district employees. RCMP school resource officers are assigned to a region of schools but are not stationed at schools. We have multidisciplinary teams that support students at risk and their families. And this support is delivered in a culturally appropriate and sensitive manner that takes into the account the specific needs of each student. And these teams include SSL workers, so the worker I just discussed, uh, educators, counselors, administrators, and RCMP members. Surrey has no intention of eliminating its school resource officers. The new Westminster and Vancouver school boards will be working on creating a new relationship with police in the future. Grace Key, Global News. Up next, a cruel twist of fate and a mom fighting for change. Everybody is in shock and nobody's doing anything about it. The tugboat tragedy that took her son on his first day on the job and how she hopes it inspires a safety overhaul. But first, he's responsible for one of B.C.'s cruelest mass murders and the victim's family wants to ensure he never gets out of prison. Final clearing stages of a single vehicle crash here in Burnaby. Eastbound on Highway 1, just east of Willingdon, the HOV lane is blocked. Still driving around on winter tires, drive into Mr. Lou for same-day tire changes. No appointment needed. 15 lower mainland locations. Find one near you at MrLube.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Burnaby. The family of six B.C. mass murder victims has compiled a mountain of information, hoping to keep the man who committed the horrifying crime behind bars. The Johnson-Bentley murders shocked the nation back in 1982, and as Ted Chernecki reports, the victims' families are worried the killer could be out on parole by this summer. And a warning, some of the details in this story are disturbing. 
Almost 39 years ago, on or about August 10th, 1982, George and Edith Bentley, parents Bob and Jackie Johnson, and their daughters, 13-year-old Janet and 11-year-old Karen, were all murdered while camping near Wells Gray Provincial Park. About a month later, the Johnson family car was found burned with what remained of the four adults in the back seat and the two girls in the trunk. Fourteen months after that, 24-year-old David William Shearing was arrested. He lived on the property nearest to the murder scene. In July, he will once again be eligible for parole. He hasn't done all the stuff that is written that the parole board has sent to him that he needs to complete. He hasn't completed very much of anything, and there's no reason for him to get out. Shearing, who has since changed his name to David Ennis, is a sadistic pedophile who stalked the family for days before killing the adults and repeatedly sexually assaulting the two girls before killing them too. The family's victims don't think there's any correcting going on in Corrections Canada. I don't really think they can change his behavior. He still has sexual fantasies. He had sexual fantasies up until eight years ago, and you just don't, they just don't disappear. Because of COVID, the hearing will be done virtually this July. The victim's family had to have all their impact statements and petitions arguing against his release delivered to the parole board and shearing, a.k.a. Ennis, by the end of this week. We hope for 16,000 names this year. We, we got 88,469, and it's still climbing. And to make a bigger impact, with the help of UPS, they printed out every single page of the petition and victim impact statements and sent them to Alberta. The board and Shearing are obliged to read them. While Shearing has been denied parole before, the family's also been successful in changing the law, so mass murderers like Ennis or Shearing are now eligible for parole every five years instead of two. Ted Chinecki, Global News. There are calls today for major changes to the safety rules governing the tugboat industry in the wake of a sinking along the north coast that claimed two lives. Our Jordan Armstrong spoke to the mother of one of the victims today who feels her son is cheering her on. Charlie was such a loving, beautiful soul. Charlie was kind, he was inclusive, non-judgmental. No mother should lose a child. But on February 11th, Genevieve Craig did. Today she wears Charlie's watch, recovered from the frigid sea. The display was dark until Sunday, when something incredible happened. It's lit up now, and um, you can see that it still says 728HI, February the 11th. Charlie's saying hi, and he's saying, go mom, go mom. Mom is fighting to stop situations like this. Tiny tugs hauling massive barges. Tugs under 15 gross tons are exempt from certain federal regulations. Transport Canada has known about the problem for years, but is yet to act. These small outfitters that are skirting regulations and uh, undercutting bids from industry to get these deals... Um, they have found a loophole and they're exploiting it and they're putting lives at risk. Charlie grew up on the water and his dream was to work for the Coast Guard. But the 25-year-old had no tug or tow training. In fact, it was his first day on the job when he boarded the small tug in Janica, assigned to haul a barge from Kitimat to Kamano. Forecasted horrific weather. Nobody else was going out that night. 
The Injunica sank in Gardner Canal, killing Charlie and Captain Troy Pearson. The tug's mate, just 19 years old, survived. Change now. Wednesday, supporters took their message to Transport Canada offices in Vancouver, demanding the tug be raised, demanding the federal minister update the laws. Charlie paid the biggest price anybody could ever make. It goes against every grain in my body to not make this right. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Transport Canada did not respond in time for our story. The cause of the sinking remains the subject of several investigations. Wainwright Marine, which owned the tugboat, told Global News they are stricken by the loss of the two men and are fully cooperating. The company could not say why the tug set sail in adverse weather conditions. And coming up, a push to create a new no-car zone. You could have pop-up plazas with seating that um, people could enjoy. The Vancouver City Council are hoping to create what she calls the Granville Promenade. And a Sunshine Coast artist turns a pandemic negative into a positive with her funny tea towels. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, brought to you in part by the BCTF, our kids and their teachers, worth investing in. Crews are still on scene here in Burnaby to investigate an earlier head-on collision that has counted away completely blocked between Imperial and Burris. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and the real Canadian superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com, open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Burnaby. One of the few aspects of the pandemic that has actually been popular is the proliferation of temporary restaurant patios. They've been a lifeline for allowing eateries and breweries to keep the doors open. And one Vancouver City Councillor wants to go even bigger, turning the entire Granville Strip into a pop-up promenade. Amadagahi has the details. If it rains enough, we will be. <laughs> All right, bathing, very nice. You might not exactly call this patio weather, but these guys do. It's a treat. Good one. And like many, they're acting on the encouragement to meet outside these days. Even if it's heavier rain, I always prefer being outside to inside. It's not a work of art, but this space and others like it in Vancouver are what the city calls part of their response to pandemic needs for people and businesses. Pop-up plazas and councillor Sarah Kirby Young wants to see more of them. I think Granville's a great chance to do a bigger scale test. In a few weeks, she'll be asking her colleagues at City Hall to support a summer-long street closure to make room for an outdoor plaza much larger than this on the Granville Entertainment District. This would be a great chance to see how people would react to having a people first street. I don't think it's difficult to do, but I think from an ideological perspective, sometimes it is. And that has been the challenge of the past. We just need political will and we need the will of our transit authority. This section of Granville Street was often closed to traffic on weekend nights back when bars and clubs were fully operating, which could provide a framework. These pop-up plazas are a great place for people to come and gather um, and they can just enjoy them or they can grab food from any local restaurant they'd like to do that. Um, it's just a great space to hang out in each neighborhood. These are wonderful. One in a Granville Entertainment District would be a great idea. I think they should add more patios. Yeah. Convenient. The motion for what could be called the Granville Street Promenade will go before council on May 18th. Imadagahi, Global News. 
When you're an artist and a humorist, how do you make a living during a pandemic? That was a question faced by a businesswoman on the Sunshine Coast. As Catherine Urquhart reports, she found a way to create something people wanted to buy that also makes them smile. At the foot of the government dock in Gibsons, inside a tiny studio, is a powerhouse of creativity. You're entering the world of humorist Saputhroid. I'm bringing joy to people's lives, making them laugh, and that feels good. Most of the feedback I get is positive, and that having a career where you get positive feedback all the time is, is great. Saw's artwork is wonderfully unique, and it's featured largely on tea towels. So when the pandemic started, she was super worried. I closed down my business, and I thought, what am I going to do? And then after about three or four weeks, I decided to start drawing pictures around the pandemic, things that would turn the negative into positive, maybe bring, make some jokes around the pandemic, which I wasn't sure if it was going to work or not. It did work in a huge way. At shops that carry the $18 COVID-themed tea towels, they've sold thousands. The reaction was fast and immediate, and we started selling a lot of her Bonnie Henry and um, uh, COVID tea towels right from the get-go. A dollar from each one goes to charity, and most bring a smile, if not a chuckle. I think a little bit of humor around um, the COVID situation helps lift, I think, the burden that, that we're all feeling and wanting this to be over, but at least we can laugh in between. That sentiment echoed by Saw, who truly believes laughter is medicine. It's huge. All I can say is it's really changed my business radically in a positive way. And I think it's basically because I've, I've given people a little bit of a laugh, a little bit of a break from the constant depressing news. And, and I hopefully, I've given them some reason to feel hope. Hope, something we all need right now. That message delivered on a tea towel. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, a warning about a potentially tainted drug supply on the Lower Mainland. Surrey RCMP say they were called out to six deaths, all of them linked to suspected opiates such as fentanyl and heroin. Sadly, five of those happened at private residences and the victims were using alone. RCMP are urging anyone who plans to use to take precautions, never use alone, watch the dosing and have a Narcan kit handy. You can also download the LifeGuard app, a free BC-based technology that connects users to emergency responders in case of an overdose. Still ahead, the final shift for an Ironman paramedic. You cannot buy that feeling. You feel good inside. The motivation that's kept him going in a community many people want to run from. And a wildlife photographer flagging dog owners who don't pick up after their pets. That's coming up next. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon. Christy, as Annie Lennox once said, here comes the rain again. Or maybe she sang it, but it seems appropriate for today. <laughs>
Absolutely. Yes. And it wasn't uh, too bad today. I mean, it was mostly dry throughout the day, but certainly in the afternoon, evening hours, we started to see it pick up. Uh, not too bad, though, in store for us tomorrow, but we do still have some more rain on the way. And there's one part of the province that has a rainfall warning. So we're getting to that. But first, here's a look at the current radar imagery. So there is that band right across our region of Vancouver Island and the Sunshine Coast, but it's going to shift further north overnight tonight. So targeting the areas across the north coast and central coast and northern parts of Vancouver Island tomorrow. Now for our region, I'm expecting still some cloud cover, but I think you'll see some sunny breaks in the mix as well. And because it's shifting to the north, we're also going to see mild conditions before the cold front swings through on Friday. So tomorrow looking really nice for the south coast, that is, whereas we are going to see periods of rain and windy conditions on Friday. In the meantime, Thursday is going to be a wet one for the north coast. We're talking about up to 90 centimeter, pardon me, millimeters of rain and and pushing right down into the northern part of Vancouver Island and the western sections as well, whereas we'll just be south of that. But those, these are the areas that have a rainfall warning. So watch for some localized flooding, certainly pooling water on the roads, Stewart, Kitimat, those areas. And you'll see the rainfall right through to the end of the day tomorrow. So heavy rain in those regions, rainfall in the interior regions as well, the Caribou Central Interior, right down to the Columbia region, but breaks a blue sky through the Okanagan Valley and across the lower mainland. So a really nice day tomorrow, that's for sure. Not completely sunny, but we'll take it, right? Uh, at least some blue sky in the mix before it's wet and windy on Friday and some nice blue sky over the weekend as well. And I'll leave you with tonight's Central Windows weather window, which is a shot of Virga. I always love Virga with a bit of a pink there, Hugh. Thank mm -hmm. you to Carly Lambing for that. Looks Vir like a watercolor. Virga being rain that doesn't make it to the yeah. surface, right? For those who don't pay attention to Christy well done, as Chris. as we do. All right, thank you. Thank you, Christy. One of Vancouver's most transient neighborhoods, uh, or in one of Vancouver's most transient neighborhoods, one man has been a fixture, saving countless lives along the way. For nearly half a century, paramedic Terry Rapana has been working the streets of the downtown east side, an Ironman who's now ready to retire. And as Jay Durant shows us, Terry got the hero send-off he deserves. Congratulations, Unit Chief Terry Rapana, on your retirement. You have always been our life preserver. He has dedicated four and a half decades of his life to helping others. But on this night, it was time to shift the attention to Terry Rapana. Friends and colleagues coming out to say farewell before his final shift. The man, the myth, and the legend. Give me Since 1975, Terry has worked in Vancouver and the downtown east side. A place where, as one colleague put it, you're either meant to be there or meant to get out right away where you know that you have been instrumental in someone's life for the better. You may have saved it or you had an emotional impact that's positive. You cannot buy that feeling. You feel good inside. And that's what keeps you going. It was his gift for telling great stories that helped many of his partners get through some of those long days and nights. You have friends near and far, always. And for anyone new to the station, he was a terrific mentor. I have come into his office in tears and left in laughter. Uh, he's always been incredibly supportive no matter what the case. But he's always got that upbeat personality and that uh, then transfers over to the crew members to make them have a, a better day when, it's a, when it can be a little bit of a, a bleak day for them. And as night set in on his last watch, the calls started coming in again. Employee number 31480. The citizens of BC thank you and wish you all the best. 
but these were much different than anything he's heard over the last 46 years. Everything Carrie, including the cookies, take care of. <laughs> it's a pleasure looking up to you as a role model. We're going to make your hugs, Carrie, and your stories. Enjoy that retirement. I love the job, and if I uh, had the health, the time, and the energy, I would have stayed. But there's always a time in everyone's life when it's time to go. This time, it's mine. All right, big guy. Jay Durant, Global News. Wise words. Way to go, Terry. Thanks so much for all that service. All right, there is uh, Squire with a look ahead at what's coming up in sports. Well, they had an afternoon game, I guess afternoon hour time, 5.30 in Ottawa, and the Canucks lost the game to Ottawa, and they didn't look good doing it. But don't expect Travis Green to blame it on post-COVID fatigue. You know, I'll say it again, you can still win when you're tired. Well, they didn't win today, and it doesn't get any easier because they have to go to Toronto right away and play again tomorrow. Whew. Also ahead, raising a stink about a poop problem in local parks. How a white rock man is flagging the offenders. I'll tell you, Richard Zussman was a teensy bit distracted this afternoon. <laughs> He's but, a big but watching but hockey, was he? Big well, fan. maybe just on Twitter, but not watching politics like he's <laughs> supposed to be. All right. Uh, after the Canucks lost to Ottawa on Monday, uh, Travis Green said, they needed to be better. This afternoon, they were worse. A bad game at a bad time. Maybe it is the effects of the COVID outbreak beginning to make its presence felt on the roster. They had a lot of adrenaline when they came back from the COVID outbreak. It helped them against Toronto. Whatever the case, Travis Green was not happy with what happened today, and nor were his players after a 6-3 loss. Thatcher Demko was back in goal. And right off the bat, Yolevi and Myers didn't help him. They let Victor Mede go right between them, and he scores. So it's one zip for the Sens, and the Canucks do not do well when they get scored on first. To the second period, things really unraveled early. Chris Tierney off the rebound. It's 2-0. That's 38 seconds in. Then a minute 10 in, Josh Norris from Brady Kachuk, and it's 3-0. And Travis Green's players have made him turn into Travis Bickle. Calls a timeout, says a few monosyllabic words, and they do respond with Tyler Myers getting one to make it 3-1. to one. All right, still early in the second. Maybe the Canucks can mount a bit of a comeback off this momentum change. Well, no, they can't because the momentum went the other way just as quickly. Thomas Shabbat on Nick Paul's rebound, and now it's 4-1. to one. And we're not even seven minutes into the second period. Weird goal here, Marcus Hogberg gets a bit confused behind his own net. Tyler Mott steals it, throws it out in front, and Jake Vertanen scores. Again, you think, okay, well maybe that will mess up Ottawa and the Canucks will get some momentum. Nope, that's not what happened. Before the end of the second period, Brady Kachuk is just waiting for a pass. Here it comes, there he goes, and it's 5-2. In the third period, the Canucks left Thatcher Demko to his own devices a number of times. I don't know what's going on here between Demko and Hughes, but I know what's happening here. It's a great save is what it is. Demko made a few in the uh, third period. There's the score, but we'll show you one more goal. It's the Canucks' final goal 
uh, Brandon Sutter. That made it 6-3. to three. And after the game, Travis Green said fatigue is no excuse. Uh, I thought we looked a little tired tonight, to be honest, physically. I thought we looked mentally tired, too. But uh, there's no rule in the league that you can't win when you're tired. And um, I actually thought we showed a little bit of mental weakness in the first, in the beginning of the second period uh, with some of the plays we made. The um, uh, first three goals, are, we just kind of handed them to them with uh, bad passes, bad turnovers, bad coverage. And all of a sudden, six minutes into the period, uh, we've given up three. Wasn't a very good one from our group. Um, you know, I thought, you know, I, I thought any time we were generating momentum, we just kind of shot ourselves in the foot, you know, a few too many turnovers, not making the right decisions uh, at the lines, and it ended up costing us. All right, from an unhappy coach to one who's in a much better mood, Whitecaps boss Mark DeSantos has uh, four points out of two games. And uh, quite frankly, he was unlucky not to get a win against Toronto on Saturday. But he is also not one to get too happy because we are only two games into the regular season and the next game is Sunday against Colorado. I know the type of marathon that it is uh, in MLS. We will have runs of four or five games that were the best team in the world and then uh, runs of three losses in a row. Uh, and it's a, it's a roller coaster. And we don't want to get too high with moments like that. We want to stay humble and we know how difficult the game's going to be on Sunday. But also you won't see us getting very, very low if moments are more difficult because we know the challenges and the burden it is uh, to be outside of our city and the concerns sometimes it brings to staff, uh, concerns it could bring to players. So, yeah, I have to praise the, the, the guys and how, how they embraced everything we were doing here. Champions League, Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City. PSG will score first. Marquinhos on the corner kick. It's 1-0. Now it's 1-1, and now Riyad Mahrez. That one, it's ball through the wall, and Kaylor Navis can't find it until it's in the back of the net. 2-1 the final for Man City. And in the NFL, Carolina has traded quarterback Teddy Bridgewater to the Denver Broncos for a sixth-round draft pick. NFL news. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. Let's check in with Sarah McDonald now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Sarah? Yeah, Chris Sophie, we continue to follow the sentencing of the so-called penthouse party king. The province's most notorious pandemic party host is now the first to be sentenced to jail time under the Health Act. But is one day behind bars enough? We will have reaction. Plus, some positive news on the COVID-19 front as the downtown east side inches closer towards herd immunity. And Squire joins us once again with sports. That's all coming up at 11. Guys. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Sarah. All right, up next, a wildlife photographer disgusted by a new kind of trail marker he sees everywhere. Take a walk through any park and it won't be long before you see one, a discarded bag full of dog poop. Well, now one White Rock man has made it his mission to call out the actions of irresponsible pet owners, one bag and one flag at a time. Kylie Stanton reports. So I spent a lot of time walking along these roads here. With just his camera and a keen eye for detail, this is where A.P. Hovas hones his craft. 
I do uh, nature photography. But lately, something else has been catching his attention. Yeah, it looks like there's one here in the grass. Small plastic bags full of... Someone's dog poop. Hovas has tried wrapping his head around the logic. It seems kind of ridiculous to go to the trouble of putting your dog's poop in a bag and then to turn around and undo all that good work by throwing it on the path. And it's not for lack of disposal options. A lot of these bags are within sight of these garbage cans. So Hovas decided it was his duty to do something. That got me started. A printout, a little glue, and this waste warrior was ready to mark his own territory. So it says, really? WTF dog walkers, don't be a jerk. Take your blank to the garbage can located nearby. Hovas now carries his flags on his walks, placing them on top of every bag he finds. So that's the idea, is to, uh, is to put it in people's minds that it's really not the kind of thing you should do. He took it a step further, getting the word out on social media, saying, I did this a few days ago and it seems to have struck a chord. Do you want to join? Now his flags are a hot commodity. I've got requests from all over Vancouver, from across Canada, from the UK, uh, some in the States, Florida. So, you know, it's an idea that really seems to have caught on. So far, the community's response has been largely positive. What's that? Good on you. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Another supporter. And while there are fines in place if someone is caught leaving the waste behind, it's where anyone is held accountable. And so, Hovas plans to keep patrolling a doo-doo do-gooder on a mission. Hopefully, it'll get to a point where those flags won't, uh, won't be needed anymore. That would be nice. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Would that ever be nice? Well Don't done. some people leave it on the yes, path? Yes, I see them all like the time. Yeah. The way back from their walk? I don't know. I don't have the Who dog. knows I don't know. why they would leave it there? That's the, that's the million-dollar question. Get rid of it properly, though. That's right. All right, uh, Christy, we'll give you the final word on the weather forecast. All right, so we are seeing light rain across the region, but it is going to ease off over tonight, overnight tonight, and then we are expecting some nice sunny breaks tomorrow. Still some cloud cover, but nice and warm, so a pretty nice Thursday. I said nice about three times. I'll say it one more time. It's going to be <laughs> nice Thursday. <laughs> that is very nice of you to say. All right, and nice of you to watch. Thank you. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, all.